Hi, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of The Players' Lounge, the tennis podcast that focuses on the mental aspect of the game. My name is Jennifer Megan. I am a former professional tennis player, and I launched this podcast because I wanted to create a space in which tennis players could find tools and solutions in order to improve their mental skills. But this podcast is not only for tennis players. It is also for parents and coaches whose purpose is to help their children and players to reach their full potential on and off the court. If you are a regular listener of the Players' Lounge podcast, thank you so much for your support. If you are new on the pod, welcome. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and preferably leave five stars on Apple Podcasts. It will really help me to increase the podcast visibility and to grow the Players' Lounge community. But if you're not on Apple Podcasts, no worries. You can also listen to this episode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Acast, and many more. Like I said, one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast was to give a voice to people whose purpose is to help athletes to become the best version of themselves on and off the court. That's why I am beyond excited about my guest of today, Mrs. Valerie Condosfield, also known as Ms. Val, a former professional ballet dancer. Ms. Val was the head coach of UCLA women's, uh, women's uh, gymnastics between 1999 and 2019. And with her teams, she won seven NCAA championships, 22 regional and 18 Pac-12 championships. She was named Pac-12 coach of the century. And what's more interesting in Valerie Condosfield's story is that she never did gymnastics. More than a great coach with a lot of athletics accolades, Ms. Val is known for being an exceptional leader who mentored hundreds and hundreds of athletes to not only become great athletes, but champions in life as well. She's a TED Talk speaker, a public speaker, and the author of the book, Life is Too Short, Don't Wait to Dance. And there are many amazing things that she's doing. Ms. Val, welcome to the Players' Lounge. Jennifer, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Life is good. The, the Olympics for gymnastics has just concluded. And uh, it was, I think it spoke volumes to everyone, not just uh, athletes. Absolutely. It was an uh, intense uh, Olympics. And uh, what was your take on everything, on um, uh, Simone Biles' statement? Uh, <laughs> how did you feel about it? You know, I've known Simone since she was about 14. We recruited her to come to UCLA. So I have stayed close with Simone and I am uh, one of the producers for her post-Olympic gymnastics tour this, this fall. So um, I think how the majority of the world feels that she transcended sport with what she did at this Olympic games and putting her health and her safety above a medal. And, um, I read somewhere that said, um, her life is not worth our entertainment. And I thought that was so apropos. Um, and I feel like her legacy now, it has transcended medals, just like Michael Phelps legacy has trans transcended his medals. Absolutely. I think it's such an important topic, you know, uh, talking about mental health in sport. And for so many years, I mean, when I was playing, it was still taboo. Why do you think that the conversation is shifting at the moment? I think the conversation is shifting because so many professional athletes have come out and um, expressed and shared their mental stresses and their anxiety and what really happens behind the scenes when you are an athlete at that level? Um, you know, the whole movement, I believe, started by, by LeBron James. I am more than an athlete, has spoke volumes um, to anyone who's paying attention. And um, it's interesting because, as you said, in 
in enumerating my bio, I've never done gymnastics. I didn't grow up in the world of athletics. I was a ballet dancer who was, I was choreographing for the UCLA gymnastics team. And when I, when I graduated from UCLA, the athletic director asked me to be the new head coach of the gymnastics team. And this was a very prominent program in our country. This wasn't like, you know, go take over this little, this little podunk of course, five-year-old program. This was like a major. And I literally laughed out loud. And I said, do you remember? I don't know the first thing about gymnastics. <laughs> and she said to me, I've observed how you work with the student athletes. And I like how you are firm, but you're compassionate. And she said, I trust that you're going to figure the rest out. And not to make this answer too long-winded, but um, it's, it's going to set up the rest of our discussion that when I took over as the head coach, I just tried to mimic other head coaches who had been successful. And that was in, I took over in 1989, not 99, but 89. And it was very um, authoritative, dictatorial style of coaching. Most coaches were. And I tried to be that. And I did not succeed. I mean, I succeeded at being a, a bully, I guess, but Our team didn't do well, and I certainly wasn't being authentic. And thankfully, um, like within one or two years of my head coaching career, I made a shift. And I remember thinking, what does athletics mean, really? Because if it's only about winning, then it's only about bragging rights and money. And there has to be more to sport than bragging rights and money. What is that? And that's when it was like, so clear to me, it was like, boom, Um, athletes, athletics, sport is a masterclass and learning really, really tough life lessons that one does not learn in a classroom. And I was like, okay, so my job now as the head coach is I'm going to develop champions in life that are going to go out in the world and make the world a better place through the sport of gymnastics and in the gym. And if I did that well enough, I knew that they would be able to bring that champion mentality to the competition and they would be able to be their best in competition and the wins would happen. And uh, that's, that's very interesting because, you know, you talked about trying to mimic all the coaches and it's something that we see a lot in sports. Um, and, I, and I like that you, you shared, you know, that you were just trying to, to be someone that you are not and, and, you know, trying to find your authentic style. And um, what was the trigger? Did you, did you have conversation with your athletes? Was there a moment when you realized that, okay, I can no longer continue to be that tough, you know, uh, harsh coach or what, what can you walk us through that, that process when you say, okay, enough is enough. I really need to, to stop acting this way. There were two triggers. One was our entire team asked me for a team meeting. And I got very excited because I love team meetings. And we sat down and for two solid hours, they gave me example after example of how my coaching style was hurtful and demeaning. And I remember a part of my brain, this part that was still trying to mimic other coaches, because I'm in a, I'm in a head coach and ho- head coaches are hired to win. We're not hired to be their friends or their mentors or anything else. We're hired to win. And so part of my brain was saying, you know what? I'm leading this program. I'm going to figure out how to win. If they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. And they, thankfully, the other side of my brain was much louder. And it asked the questions, is your intention to be demeaning? No. Is your intention to be hurtful? No. Is your intention to be brash and bullish? No. Okay, so by taking the pause to ask myself those questions, I was then able to say, okay, I need to make a shift. And I don't, I don't know what the shift is going to look like right now, but I'm going to figure it out. So that was the first trigger. And the second trigger was I was walking through our student store and I happened upon Coach John Wooden's book on leadership. Coach John Wooden won 10 national championships in 12 years. He was the head coach of the UCLA basketball team. Yes. He coached people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton and people like that. And 
this, his book magically opened to his definition of success. And I read, and I'm going to paraphrase it because it's rather long. Coach Wooden was an English major, so he used lots of words. <laughs> and paraphrased, it was success is peace of mind in knowing that you've done your best. And I thought, well, okay, this is nice, but this is like a Hallmark card. This is Let me the, read I, on. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want yeah. to say that again, because I think this is like very important. Uh, success is peace, uh, of mind. peace of mind, knowing that you tried your best. Yes. Wow. That's it. That's great. That's it. That's uh, all success is. And, and, and the, I mean, the full definition, which is, is as he said, success is peace of mind, which is a direct result in the self-satisfaction that comes from knowing that you have become the best that you're capable of becoming. So I paraphrase that. <laughs> success no, that's is knowing that you have done your best. And I literally read this, Jennifer, I read it over and over and I skimmed other pages because I thought he has to mention winning. Yes. He's a coach. <laughs> he never mentioned winning ever. And I got to know Coach Wooden very, very well. And I got to know some of his players, including people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar very, very well. And I asked them, did Coach really never mention winning? And they said, never, ever. Wow. So, yeah. so, so how, that, that's fascinating to me because, um, I mean, you, you had uh, amazing success and, and Coach Wooden as well. I mean, he, he was, you know, elected like the, the greatest coach of all time, you know, in sports. So, I mean, we're talking about very successful uh, coaches here. And in that definition of success, winning is not part of it. And yet you have a lot of success. And, and that's why it's very interesting to have this conversation because how do you teach that, that success is you know, trying your best and you don't talk about winning? How do you um, instill this culture of not winning at all costs? How, how did you um, manage to do that with your teams uh, throughout the years? Well, personally, I did talk about winning one time. And yeah. it was always at the beginning of the year. Okay. And I said, what is our end goal okay. to win the national championship? Okay, now let's put that away. Mm. And let's talk about how we're going to do that. So in the discussion of the how, a second goal would always come up. And that is the last day of the national championship, we want to have no regrets. Mm. Regardless of how we do, we want to be able to say we left it all on the floor and we have no regrets for the season. And so once we did that, I, I, I feel that with athletes, so often they have one goal and one clear vision and that's the gold medal. Yeah. And that's great. Put that aside. Now let's break it down to other goals. And the important part of breaking it down to other goals is goals that are 100% in your control. So our season in college is eight months. They show up in September and our national championship is at the end of April. Okay. So, okay, end of April, we wanna win the national championship and or leave the arena with no regrets. So let's back that up. What does that mean for January when we start competing? What does that mean for December when you all go home for Christmas break for 10 days? What does that mean for when finals start to hit? What does that mean for October? October for us was always the worst month. That is when they got sick, the mm -hmm. flu. That is when they got tired because the novelty of showing up with their team has worn off. That's when season is too far away. That's when midterms and papers are due. October always sucked for us. And I was like, let's talk about this. And one of my gold medal Olympians, Kyla Ross, she kept saying, why do we need to talk about it? If you talk about it, we're just going to manifest it. I said, no, we're <laughs> going to talk about it so that you can do something about it on the front end. Mm -hmm. So you all know you get sick from the flu in October. What can we do in September to make sure that doesn't happen? You know that, that papers are due coming in October. What can you do now? instead of waiting for it to happen in October. Um, so I really believe in setting big goals, then breaking them down, and then setting daily goals. 
And, and the daily goal is to, I, I asked my student athletes this every day and we lined up, okay, this is the goal by the end of the day. Um, you know, we want to get more clean. We want to get more dialed in with sticking our dismounts. So this is how training is going to go today. This is what you're going to do on the different events. And let's go down one at a time. Every athlete, tell me how you're going to get 1% better today in that area for you. And some of them was, I'm going to go do drills. I'm going to go do an extra 15 minutes of drills for others. It was, I'm going to really take control of my brain and I'm not going to feed any negative thoughts. And when I do, I'm going to come tell a teammate or a coach or something like that. And we would all go around and the coaches would, would also participate in this. That's how I, I, as a coach, I'm going to get 1% better today by, and so there's transparency. There's buy-in because you've given your athletes a voice. Absolutely. And there's accountability. Yes, I was going to say responsibility and accountability, which, which is wonderful because a lot of times we see coaches saying, I'm the coach and do as I say, and players don't have a voice. And I really like what you said about, you know, setting daily goals. Um, actually, I played uh, university in U- I played college tennis. And our coach was also asking us to send him daily goals, you know, in the evening. So every day I had to send him a message. Okay, hi, coach, my goals for tomorrow. I want to be more precise on my returns. I want to work on my serve. And at the beginning, I thought it was a bit like tedious. But at the end, I understood that it was a way to kind of set up my mind for tomorrow's practice and be more active. So that, that's a great way. It's very small. It takes five minutes, but at least right. you, set, you set your attention. You know, you don't, you don't just come and do what the coach says. So it's a way to teach um, responsibility. Um, and, and right. you, okay. And you've been doing that for, you know, throughout the years with your, with your um, athletes. And I, I want to go back a bit with your um, ballet career, because uh, before joining, uh, um, you know, UCLA, you, you were, I think, uh, dancing for the Washington Ballet. And then you, you find out that there was uh, this position. And I want to, to understand, like, what happened in your mind? Did you, were you done with ballet or did you just find the opportunity? How did you make the switch to say, okay, my career as a ballerina might be over and I'm going to join that opportunity? Was it uh, a long process? Or how did it work? Ah, Jennifer, nobody's ever asked me that. Oh, wow. I speak a lot. (laughs) I I tell my story a lot. So thank you. Um, The first thing is I was not born to be a ballerina. I am not naturally flexible. I don't have, I'm Greek. So I have these Greek thighs and I was not born like a hundred pounds. And um, I literally went to a few auditions and I stood there and they said, oh, your head is too big and your neck is too short. Okay. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now what am I supposed to do about that? Um, but I got roles and I got cast in ballets, um, mainly because I, I came alive on stage. I could dance. And, um, interestingly, I, I never got nervous waiting in the wings and there were buckets in the wings for the dancers that would have to throw up. They were so nervous before going on stage. Wow. And when I was thinking about what I could teach the gymnast that I was coaching, that was one thing. I knew I could prepare them mentally and emotionally and physically to be prepared because gymnasts waiting in the wings is standing there waiting for the judge to salute them before they go up on the event. It's like, I knew how to prepare them for that moment to be calm, but enthusiastic and excited. I, I could teach them how to reframe their words in their head. Because as, as you know, when anybody who's listening to this in sports, you know that when you are stressed, physiologically, your blood starts flow, flowing faster, your mouth gets dry, your palms get sweaty, you start breathing shallowly the whole bit. Yes. Well, guess what? The same thing happens to our bodies when we get excited. So let's just reframe that. Oh, we can work with enthusiasm and excitement versus yes. stress. Enthusiasm and excitement is a release of your potential. Stress is a suppression of yep. your potential. 
Um, so anyway, I was dancing and I was 22 years old. So I'd gone, I, for four years, I didn't go to college out of high school. And, um, the one thing I really missed was learning education, being in a classroom. I love school and I wasn't a great student. I, I should say I was a great student because mm -hmm. I always showed up and I paid attention and I studied and I learned, but I didn't have this memory ability and I sucked at math and sciences still to this day. I did too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> My brother is a rocket scientist. He literally builds spaceships and oh, I'm wow. like, okay, but um, I miss school. I miss learning. And I was in the, the studio all day long, you know, class in the morning and then five, six hours of rehearsal at night. And um, when I heard literally through the universe, I heard that UCLA needed a dance coach and a choreographer for their gymnastics team. I was like, UCLA academics dance. Okay. That's me. And without thinking about it much and without any trepidation, I found out who the head coach was, gave him a call, told him my resume. And he said to me, we don't have a salary to give you, but I can give you a full scholarship if you've not gone to school. And that quickly, I decided to retire from dancing and start this next chapter of my life. And I like to tell that part of the story because I was at UCLA for 37 years, eight years as the assistant coach, 29 years as the, um, as the head coach. And I had a tremendous, tremendous career and opportunities and meeting people that I would have never met. Coach John Wooden ended up, ended up being my mentor. I mean, I got that close to him and none of that would have happened had I been too afraid to pick up the phone and make the ask. And when I speak, especially to young people about this, I was like, think about it. What's the worst thing that could happen? The guy would have said, no, thank you. We're not interested. I wouldn't take that personally. He doesn't even know me. So what harm could come from picking up the phone and making the ask? You said something very uh, important there. You said, no, um, I wouldn't take that personally. And I think that for a lot of us, you know, when we get the no, because you're absolutely right. Worst case scenario, they say no. But the rejection feels like, oh, they're just not saying no because they're not interested in looking for someone else or a profile. They're saying no to us, to our identity. Uh, it, it's very interesting. At the moment, I'm reading that book, uh, The Four Agreements. And one of the things that they say, so the first one is to have impeccable speech. And I'm on the second agreement. I started like two days ago. And they're saying that don't take things personally. And I think this is very hard, you know, for, for people and athletes in general. You know, when we, we lose, we feel like it's our own identity that just is, you know, rejected. But what made you so, um, you know, comfortable? You said that you never, you didn't feel the pressure when you, when you were about to go to stage. Was it something that you trained? Was it something natural? Because you said, I can teach that, which is amazing. And obviously you did. But in you growing up, did you, did you have the natural confidence? How, how did you have that, that poise, you know, in those um, pressury moments? I had a wonderful mother who never made me feel less than. And when I would make mistakes or I would break something, I remember one Thanksgiving, she was talking and I spilled my glass of milk all over the entire table, all over the food, everything. She didn't miss a beat. She kept telling her story and said, oh, honey, can you go get some towels to clean this up? And she kept telling her story. And it literally was the metaphor, don't cry over spilled milk. And yeah, I, someone pointed that out to me a few years ago when I was telling the story, I was like, oh my gosh, it was. <laughs> um, but I had that growing up. I wished every child could have someone in their life that allows them to make mistakes. And the other thing that has always been really clear to me in coaching my student athletes, um, I also married a football coach. So okay. there's a lot of coach talk in our house <clears throat> and you know, if, if athletes could just go back to how they felt when they were growing up playing that game and yeah, you get upset when you lose and you, you know, it's, it's, that's part of being competitive, mm -hmm. but you don't internalize 
your mistakes personally. And I've noticed that with the great athletes that they are able to, I hate the word failure, but I'm going to use it right now. Um, they're able to move from failure to recovery very quickly. So you look at a Tom Brady, you look at a football quarterback, yep. um, American football quarterback, um, you know, if he throws a pass and it's nowhere near the receiver, if he spends any amount of time taking it personally, I suck. I'm not good enough. Everybody's going to hate me. What are the tweets going to say? What, what are the fans going to say? What's that booing I hear? If he spends any amount of time in that, he has lost that time in preparing for the next play. So the great athletes shorten the space between failure and recovery. And in doing so, they only look at what knowledge they can gain from what they just did. So, oh my God, you know, my arm wasn't tight when I released the ball. I was on the wrong foot when I released the ball. Let's, let's look at it from a pragmatic standpoint, techn a, a technical standpoint versus a personal standpoint. Um, and I think they are also, if you're able to do that, you're then able to silence the noise yes. of, of negativity and I'm not good enough and, and all of that that you're hearing from the outside. But okay, so when I speak with young people, it, this is something I say, but I think it resonates with all of us. Anytime life hands you something, and so in tennis, if you could hit a ball and then you hit it back and it hits, goes into the net. Okay. Anytime something bad happens to you, these thought bubbles come up. Yep. And so what would, what would be two thought bubbles, Jennifer, that would come up if you hit a really bad pass? Well, you have two options. The number one is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. That sucks. Or the second level would be, okay, uh, it's because I hate uh, late. Okay, I have to eat earlier. Move on. And then it's right. about choosing which one we want to right. listen. And so I have, I always have my young people draw a little smiley face of themselves. Then they draw these little thought bubbles up there. And how you move forward in life is going to be 100% dictated by the thought bubble you feed and consequently the thought bubbles you starve. And so in our sport, in practice, oftentimes young athletes think, you know, why is the coach being so mean? The coach hates me. Why? Well, if you feed that thought bubble, what do you think your next turn up on balance beam is gonna look like? Horrible. It's not, it's gonna be horrible. Okay, so, but, but that is the point. It's a hundred percent on you. You have one, 100% control over your thoughts. Yes. It's, it's and we're smart enough to know that the thoughts that we feed, every single thought you feed is going to have multiple repercussions. So when you really, really, really take control of your thoughts, that's when you stop being a victim in life. That's, that's the magic of it. That, that's great. And do you, so do you think that those um, great athletes that you, you've seen throughout the years, they, they have, um, I like to talk a lot about, you know, identity, because like you said, um, you know, knowing that you are not your results. And it seems like, you know, when you, you mentioned Tom Brady, but that, that applies to, to Kobe Bryant, you know, to, to uh, uh, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, I mean, all the greats, seems that they are not attached to they want to win don't get me wrong but they're not attached to the result in the sense that their value doesn't depend on the result do you do you think is it is it something that you've noticed uh, throughout the years among those amazing athletes that you've mentored yes to a point but i actually just watched the weight of gold um michael phelps the documentary that they did i think there was apollo ono and um gracie gold um and a few other athletes that they interviewed. Um, and they talked about the depression yes. and all of that. I think Djokovic is a great example because when was it last year? Was it the US Open where he got pissed off and he hit a ball and it hit the yeah. rep? It, it, it was last year, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so imagine if he had chosen that word. It's, that word is really, really important. Yes. Imagine if he had chosen to spend his time reading all of the hate that was coming at him on social media. If he chose it, then he had to internalize it. And if he's internalized it, he's feeding it. How would his next match have gone? I mean, bad. And, and I, that's why it's a very good example because he gets a lot of hate. Regardless, yeah. no matter what he does, he gets hate. And what's to me fascinating about him is that he has this ability to use that hate and transform it into something, you know, that helps him to win. And to me, that's his, his major strength is to, to be able to take the hate and to put it aside or to use it in a way that say, okay, I'm going to use that negativity and I choose to transform it into something positive. I choose to put more focus into my shots. I choose to be more focused. I choose to be more resilient. And, you know, we see, you know, he's been, he's been winning, you know, I mean, except from that miss in, in the Olympics, but I mean, he's on his way for, for calendar Grand Slam. So, so yeah, uh, to me, it's, yeah. it's just tremendous. Yeah. I feel that you either need to be able to be like him and use it. I've, I've had athletes that they loved hearing all the negativity coming from the crowd and all of that, or you need to be Teflon and you just need to let it roll off your back. Um, <clears throat> because I speak with so many young people, um, I do try to get them to understand that anyone who is typing, spewing hatred out there, anyone of any age, it's coming from a place of their own hurt. Yes. Of their own history. So of their own triggers. It's not coming from a healthy place. And, you know, we've all heard now hurt people hurt people. Yes. And so there's one way to use it. Like you said, he uses that to fuel him. There's another way to just be Teflon. But in the process, if it does affect you, if you do feel it's weighing on you, just take some time to have some compassion, tap into your own compassion, tap into your own grace and realize that person that said that really horrible thing about you, there is coming from a place of hurt. It's about them. It's not about you. I agree. I, I definitely think like, like you said, hurt people, hurt people. And, and we see that a lot. I mean, actually recently, um, a few days ago, a French tennis player just shared the messages that she received because she lost the match because people are betting and they're losing their bets. So they're becoming furious. I mean, the things that she received, which is crazy. Um, how did you help your athletes to, to cope with the whole social media? Because it's, it's a whole new component of, you know, career management for athletes. Um, what, what do you think, I mean, how do you think that, um, you know, athletes can manage better, you know, social media and not to be affected too much by it? Well, I think that first of all, you need to take control of your phone and your social media and not let it have control over you. Mm -hmm. And every single athlete I've asked male or female, every single one says they spend too much time on social media. Every, well, and the conversation always starts with them saying, I'm so tired. I didn't get enough sleep or I have so much to do during the day. I didn't have time to study. I'm like, okay, let's pull out your phone see how much time you're spending on your phone. <laughs> the average amount of hours a young girl spends on their phone is eight hours a day on their phone. And the average amount for boys is six. Ooh. So now let's talk about you not, not having enough time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but the next part of it is I just did a gymnastics camp and there were teenage girls there. And I went around and I asked every one of them, what gets you, what um, gets in your way from being your best self every day? What is it? Every one of them said, I need more sleep and I spend too much time at home. I'm like when I go to bed on my phone, scrolling through social media. And I said, would it be helpful if your mom took your phone from you? They all said, yes. Mm. I said, you're 16 years old. You really need your mom to take it. Now that you've realized this, you really need your mom to take your phone away from you. 
Um, and so is training them. What happened with the iPhone, in my opinion, is that the genie is out of the bottle and it's created all of these issues, good and bad, but we don't know how to put the genie in the bottle. We don't have to put, we don't know how to put restrictions on the genie. And it's incumbent on all of us who feel stressed, who feel anxiety, to take responsibility for our health as Simone Biles did in the Olympic games. We can't wait for our coach to do it, for our family to do it, for our parents, for our friends to do it. We, you have to be your best friend. And I feel a daily part of that is quiet time without your phone, without outside noise, quiet time to just sit still with yourself and go through your day and pat yourself on the back for the things that you're proud of that you did, even helping someone cross the sidewalk or saying thank you to your spouse when they brought you a cup of coffee, whatever that is. You know, we going back to what we said earlier in this conversation, it's really important to set small goals. Yes. And it's really important to celebrate those small victories with a personal at a girl or at a boy. Celebrating. It's something that is uh, also very important to mention because um, I remember when I uh, moved to the States to play, you know, college tennis, uh, one of the things that the sports psychologist, you know, uh, told me to do was because I would watch, I would be winning the matches and say, yeah, but my forehand was this and my serve. And then he said, okay, Jennifer, did you win? Yes, but because I was so used to be brought up that way. Yeah, you won, but you did this and this and this. I mean, you know, the whole driving home and, and everything. Uh-huh. And then he told me, okay, every time you win a match, celebrate. I don't care if you go by, you know, a muffin somewhere or you do a dance, whatever. And every week I had to report and tell him, okay, this is what I did to celebrate. I, I felt so stupid at the beginning. Okay, I bought a muffin, you know, and then, and then I started to be more creative because I felt like, you know, my celebration sucked. And, but in, we see that a lot in tennis and maybe gymnastics. I mean, probably in gymnastics, we, we ask people to be performant at a very young age and it takes out this element of, you know, of play, of fun. Um, how did you keep that with your athletes? We, we made it a part of our training every day. So as I said, we started every, we started every day, especially the last few years of my coaching career, um, the same way we would talk about our goal for the day. Everybody Mm -hmm. would mention how they're going to get 1% better. And then I would have them close their eyes and do some deep breathing, which we all know really fuels your, your cells. And then I told them, I want you to think of one thing that you're grateful for that you have not earned. So in our country, women can, young girls can play sports. In our country, girls can play sports in leotards. So that's something you've not earned. Another thing is how strong your mind and your body is. That's what you were born with. You didn't earn it. You know, give thanks for something, your family that you were born into, whatever it is. And when you start your day in gratitude, it has a way of melting away all of the yeah, buts or what ifs. And so we started that way. Then every single day, we would divide the team between blue and gold, our UCLA colors, and we would play some type of silly competitive game, like a handstand contest. Or I'd bring a ball in because gymnasts have a really bad hand-eye coordination <laughs> and, you know, how many times they can keep the ball at volleying, volleying the volleyball and which team wins something competitive to tap into their competitive juices from my childhood memory, not from where they are now, where they're, they have to win. Otherwise they're the worst person on the planet. Um, and I'm sure that you've, you've heard or read or seen the reports coming out of the Netherlands. Um, one reason why I remember seeing an interview with the director of the Olympic committee for the Netherlands. And he said, one reason why he feels their athletes excel at the sports that they compete in is because they're not allowed to keep score until the age of 13. 
So in our country, there's travel ball that you start at like six and seven, you know, there's all, I mean, all-star, there's all these, you just hit with this pressure at a very young age. They don't feel that they don't get into that. They're not allowed. That's great. I know till the age of 13. That, that's wonderful. I mean, that, that reminds me of uh, Richard Williams, actually, you know, is, is girls starting to play those juniors tournaments and saw how like awful, you know, like the whole atmosphere was. And he said, okay, I'm going to take my girls out of that, which is going to practice. I mean, I'm going to, they're going to be great, but they're not going to be in that environment. So it was kind of this way for them not to have to keep score. Um, how, how did you, um, you know, manage the, the relationships with, you know, parents when in some cases they might, you know, be uh, put too much pressure on their, on their children? How did you manage to, to do that? I just kept re- reiterating to them, you know, your child, your daughter didn't try to fall off a beam. You know, she's, she's working well. She's working hard. She is having some mental issues with negativity, but we're working through that. So as her dad, what is your definition of success for your daughter? And I remember asking one of the dads who was a professional football player. And he says, for her to win the national championship and her to be the vault champion. I said, okay, well, you leave that training to me and our staff. And then I also want you to understand that A, gymnastics is a subjective sport So everything they do, they're being judged on by another human being. But also anytime you're in any type of sport, there's always that one call that could have gone either way. And often that one call determines the outcome, which is why my goal for your daughter is to be able to leave the national championship without any regrets. Because she could go out there and perform a perfect routine and a judge, one judge gives her a 995 and the other gives her a 90, and she's gonna lose competition. But, and and it, the difference in a half of a tenth in gymnastics is like it being a millimeter off the line in tennis. It's done. Yeah. yeah. It would, if it would have gone the other way, you would have been the hero. Yes. And, um, and that does the message, you know, go through, or like, do you, you know, did he, did he understand that? Was he able to? I mean, not getting sometimes um, he had a hard time because the very next meet she fell and he walked out of the arena in the middle of the meet. She saw him walk out and I called him up and I said, first of all, I always ask permission to be honest, because I don't want a parent thinking that I'm telling them how to parent. Um, And then I just say, I just, I just want you to, I'm not going to say what I think you were feeling. I'm going to tell you how you walking out out of the arena, look to her, her teammates coaches and everybody else that was around you that know you're her her dad and if this is how you want them to perceive you then you don't need to change your behavior and he's like no that wasn't it at all I was just so frustrated I didn't know what to do I said well in that instance you probably just should have sat there and started thinking yourself about all the years and all the things that your daughter has done that has made you so very very proud to be her dad you know, start feeding your own positive thought bubbles. Wow, that's that's a very good advice. I think like, um, and, and it's very hard for parents as well. I feel like when their kids get into sports, uh, a lot of them uh, don't know really what's going on. And a lot of the mistakes that, that we see, and that's why I think it's cool to have those conversations because they do what they think should be. The same way when you started uh, coaching, you thought that you were supposed to mimic you know, those, uh, you know, dictatorial, you know, coaches, they do the same thing. Oh, I have to be tough because it's about sports. It's about discipline, hard work, toughness. And uh, right. yes. And then a lot of times, you know, like sometimes conversation like this, you know, are really helping because they get to understand, oh, that was not my intention. Of course, I love my kid. Of course, I want him or her to do well. So, so that, that's, is it, is it something that, you know, this, this, those type of conversation is something that you learned with Coach Wooden when he was mentoring you. What was the, the main teaching that you, you got from him? Um, one thing I want to say, I'm, I'm looking at right now, I can't find the book that I read, but, oh, yes, I can. Um, I think every single parent should read The Conscious Parent 
and it's by Dr. Shafali, S-H-A-F-A-L-I. The conscious um, She has been someone that Oprah talks to quite a bit. And she talks about, um, she's a psychologist out of New York. I think she's originally from India. And <laughs> I just love how she speaks because she doesn't get all coach talk in her book or in her, her videos, her YouTube videos, but she just, in a very lovely way, just shares the fact that when a parent says, good job, even if it's athletics or academically minded, they're saying good job because it's a reflection on them and how great of a parent they're being, they're doing, wow. how great parenting they're doing. And she goes into depth about, and she gives, she gives us examples of ways we can retrain our brains. Um, like even when you say, I'm so proud of you, it's actually about you being proud of it. It's not about that. It's a very selfish thing to say. Mm. And um, yeah, I love that book. The That's very parent. interesting. So mm -hmm. what would be like the sentences? Like what would be some of the examples that, you know, had to, to rephrase those things? Um, don't focus on, and I talk about this in my TED talk, don't focus on the end result. So instead of saying your daughter comes home with an A in science, instead of saying, good job, you say, wow, what did you learn? Wow, what did you learn that was really fun in that class? I remember I came home, I got a D in physics. And as I said earlier, my brother was a rocket scientist. So he got an A, I got a D. And my mom was like, well, what'd you learn? Did you learn anything in that class? And I said, yeah, I learned this and that and that. She goes, well, great, that's awesome. She didn't focus. She didn't even bring up the attention to the D. And then I said to her, I said, mom, I I barely passed the class. She goes, but you did pass the class. How cool is that? Now let's move on. I was like, okay. That's good. No, yeah, not, not focusing on the result is, is something that is so important and uh, that needs to really be taught like at the early age because you are so right. You know, you, you have a, a grade and people say, oh yeah, I got 90 out of 100. Okay, we'll go to 100. These are the right. questions that we ask, you know, right. and, and uh, right. instead of asking, hey, what did you learn? How was the, how was the right. class? Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? You know, those things yeah. really help you to, to not be result oriented. But uh, I mean, society is framed that way. We, you know what, Jennifer, and for parents that are listening, I came home one day and I said, told my parents that they cast a new ballet. And my, my dad said, did you get the lead? And I was immediately deflated. And my mom said, oh, honey, what's it about? Like, mm -hmm. she didn't even care if I got cast in it or not. She was just excited that I was excited that they cast in the ballet. Wow. And I always remember that in my coaching, when a student athlete comes to me and says something, it's like, let's reframe it for them in a way that's really positive and fuels them with inspiration to yes. want to learn more. I mean, when you think about coaching, the only reason someone needs a coach in their life is to help them do something they can't do on their own. So the old way of coaching is to dictate, like you said, do it this way, because I said so. Yes. That is going to produce, that may produce a change. Like let's say you're trying to change the swing of a backhand. Yeah. That may produce the, the physics and the physiology of the change but they're not going to understand why. Why is it important for me to shift the weight on my right foot? And so what I found worked so much better was to motivate change. So if I've got a girl that's falling off beam because she's not jumping out of her legs before she flips or her hips are crooked because she's not jumping out of both of her legs, I can tell her a hundred times, jump out of your legs, jump out of your legs, good, jump out of your legs. But if I can take her to a grease board, if I can take, I would just literally go get a piece of chalk and I'd start drawing on the mat in front of her. And I'd say, okay, look it, this is what your hips look like when you're not jumping out of your legs. And that's why your hip hurts when you land because you're landing with all the force on that one leg. Yeah. So if you do that with your legs and I draw it, because most of us are visual learners. Yes. You draw it. And then she's motivated to make the change versus I'm going to do it because Miss Val told me to jump out of my legs. 
yeah, the, the, it's, a, it's a very big difference because it's not about telling, it's about, okay, explaining why. So you take into co the consideration of the person. And um, I remember, I've seen, I've seen you sharing the story about uh, uh, Kathleen Oyashi when she came to UCLA and, and um, say that, you know, she actually said in a meeting because she, she's been, you know, um, body shamed and, and, you know, like, like, like we discussed, you know, in that bad way of coaching. She said, I don't want to be great again. And, and that was very um, striking to me because uh, could, you, could you tell us how you managed to, to make a want to be great again? What, what happened there? I think it was very interesting. Yeah, well, she didn't want to be great again because everything she associated with being great was hurtful mentally, emotionally, and physically. She literally was broken yeah. in all those areas. And I, again, you know, both sides of my brain started talking to me. And one side of my brain, I wanted to say, what the heck am I paying you $60,000 a year in a scholarship for? Okay, well, what, how is that going to help her want to be great <laughs> again? That is so immature. And the other side of my brain was like, okay, how am I going to help her want to be at the level of gymnastics that she loved? I mean, she was such a beautiful gymnast. She has to love the experience of flipping and twisting, you know? How am I going to get her to love that feeling more than the memories of being, of the abuse? And I thought, I thought, you know what? First of all, I need to help her understand she's more than an athlete. She's Caitlin Ohashi. She's a whole human being. So I'm going to get to know the whole person and I'm going to coach the whole person. And as I say in my TED talk, I chose to only talk to her about gymnastics in the gym. And when we were outside the gym, if she was in my office or we were going and having coffee or something, if she would bring gymnastics up, I would say, Caitlin, if you want to talk about that, that's fine. But I didn't ask how your gymnastics going. I said, ask you how your day is going. And you could see her kind of the distrust in her eyes. And it took a long time. Like relationships take a long time to develop trust. Yes. And um, she says that, okay. And so then the next thing I did was she was one of the girls that I asked, she was in the gym and I said, how do you understand that most girls your age are on their phones eight hours a day? And she was shocked. And I said, it's kind of, what do you think about that? She goes, I think I would be a lot less stressed. I would get more sleep and I would actually be like caught up on my schoolwork if I actually paid attention to how much time I spend scrolling through social media. And she says, but Miss Val, I scroll to numb out. And I've had a lot of athletes tell me that it's a way of numbing out. Yeah. So I said, okay, if you're getting on your phone that much, why don't we use it for good? Why don't we look up Ted talks? And I said, Caitlin, you can look up anything on a Ted talk, anything, music, art, history, science. You can look up sex. You can look up anything. She did not know what a Ted talk was. Mm -hmm. So the next day she came in, she said, Miss Val, I still spent eight hours on my phone, but <laughs> I spent four hours going down the Ted talk rabbit hole. Wow. And I said, what did you learn? What'd you find out? Like, what were you gravitated towards? She said, for the first time, I learned that I really have an affinity for wanting to learn more about the homeless, why they're homeless, and how we can systematically help them mm -hmm. in their lives. She goes, I learned that I gravitated toward the psychology behind people who bully. And she learned all of this through TED Talks. That's and, and if you follow Caitlin now, Caitlin's 25 years old, I think that is her platform when she went viral and, you know, 180 million views for her yes. floor routine. And I said to her, okay, Kate, you now are one of those celebrities that you have this massive platform. Nobody really cares. You got a 10 on floor. That's the fun part. How are you going to use your platform for good? And she has written spoken word about all of this. She speaks out about all of this. That has been her calling. And she said it was back then that she started finding her self-love and her self-respect again. Wow. 
That, that's uh, that's a wonderful story. Thanks for sharing because uh, de definitely I think like um, helping you know athletes understanding that they are not just you know they are to like shut up and dribble, but to, mm -hmm. they are more. They are whole individuals, and and you know being able to say okay, there's more to life, and and to you know um, you know give them the choice to actually discover themselves. I think is is one of the requirement of a coach but uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately we, we don't see that much and what what do you think is the difference you know between uh, great athletes and people who really make a difference like you said you know Kathleen you know okay now you're a celebrity but how are you going to use your platform what do you think is the difference I feel the difference is now that that um, there really is a safe space for people to speak up and not be ridiculed. Mm -hmm. There's a safe space for all the gymnasts that spoke up about being sexually abused by yes. Dr. Larry Nassar. Yeah. Um, there's a safe space when Michael Phelps spoke up and all the other athletes that have spoken up about mental dis duress. Um, and they're no longer seen as weak. Thankfully, we're living at a time when what we used to call soft skills are actually strong power life skills. And um, one thing that I think we coaches really need to make a shift with is honing our own listening skill. And whenever I've had an athlete, even not just a gymnast, but other athletes that would come talk to me um, or in this, whatever, um, I always ask an open-ended question about what is it that, that get, trips you up during the course of the day? Like you set out for the morning, you know, and at what point do you feel really disillusioned and despondent that you get tripped up? You ask an open-ended question. And then the important part is shut up and listen. And don't interject what you think they're feeling or how they can fix it or anything. Just be there as a support sounding board for them, a safe space for them to purge everything that they're feeling without any judgment, one good or bad. And we had a sports psychologist when he was addressing this with our team, he wrote up on the grease board, the word listen. And he said, now check this out. When you rearrange the letters, it spells silent. So you, you cannot truly listen unless you're silencing your mind. And we all do it. We all sit there, someone else is talking and thinking about, okay, what I want to say next. Yes. Oh, okay, what they're saying. You know, we all do it. So it is a skill that we should focus, we should work on developing till the day we die. Definitely. No, I think it's it's so uh, it's so great to, to say that, you know, just be silent. A lot of times we we do that. Oh, but that's what you meant. Or no, that's not really how you feel. And and we do that especially with young athletes because we think that they don't really know what they're talking about. But what I like with you know your coaching and the, the stories that you share, every single time you put athletes at the center of the action. Like you said, it's about choosing. I choose. We get to do those things, and it's not just you know you empower athletes just to really have to be the driving force of their career. And, and that's something that I, I really appreciate and I think, and I really want other coaches to do. Uh, I, I wanna talk a bit about your, as we're wrapping up, I wanna talk a bit about your, your book uh, in which you're, you shared you know, um, so many stories. Uh, what made you, um, you know, write it? And what was the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the events that um, you know, sparked this? Uh, okay. <laughs> So my book, um, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance, uh, it's all about how did a ballerina become one of the winningest coaches in, in collegiate history. And all of the mistakes I made are in there and, and everything. But what it's mainly about is how I chose to coach in a really kind of unorthodox way that but I believed in it. Like one thing I believed in was because I was, I coached balance beam and I've never been up on the beam. Okay. I don't know what I'm doing, but I figured out the emotional mental side of it. And so I used to watch 
are gymnasts <clears throat> and they would have such a stern, stoic look on their face that I felt was, it was suppressive. And I'm like, how are they expect, expected to perform at their best and release their brilliance up there if they're suppressing themselves with their own thoughts? So I told all my athletes, I was like, okay, I know you're not gonna wanna do this and you're not gonna like it, but you're gonna need to smile on beam. Okay, I want you to smile. And the elite athletes thought I was nuts. Sam Peshik, who is a silver medalist in 2008, she tells a great story that she's like, I thought Miss Val was crazy and I'm a really good beam worker. I don't need to smile. And she said, so I wouldn't do it. And she kept, I was on her butt constantly. She says, I remember being in a meet and I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna smile to get Miss Val off my butt. And she said, I just performed this really cheesy, cheeky smile, the whole routine. She said, she, it's the first time she got a 10. She, oh. she got her best beam score. And so then I start looking at, you know, trying to give myself some credibility here. And so I start looking at the benefits of smiling. Sure enough, Harvard has come out with a study that says when the sides of your face go up, such as in a smile, even though if you're not feeling the smile, if you just physiologically make the sides of your face go up, it will produce endorphins in your brain that makes you think you're happy. Hmm. So doesn't every athlete want to step on the court feeling happy? Definitely. Now, happy is not fun and silly. Happy is prideful, joyful, you know, happy. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to step on the court like that, up on the balance beam like that? Definitely. So those are the unorthodox things that I did, not really knowing why I did them. That's all in the book. Um, halfway through the book, I, I turned to my co-author and I said, I can't write this book because people are going to think that they're going to get all this wonderful wisdom from a seven-time national championship coach and they're going to read it and they're going to realize I'm a total whack job. <laughs> and he goes, Miss Val, you are a whack job. You're nuts. You're crazy. He says, but you, you, you empower all of us to re release our inner whack jobs. So that's why people need to read the book because you give us permission to be ourselves and not try to be a cookie cutter of what someone else has done. It's about authenticity again, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and mm -hmm. teaching, and like you said, empowering us to be our best selves. So uh, what are your next projects? You, you talked about, you know, uh, producing um, Simon Bice tour, but what's mm -hmm. next for you, Miss Lau? I actually just met with a producer in LA and he's very excited to work with me to produce a documentary on our 2018 national championship. Oh, wow. um, it's, it is one of, if not the biggest comeback in sports that we ended up winning that thing. Um, and if you go on YouTube and you type in 2018 UCLA national championship, whatever more, uh, the last event comes up balance beam and you see our routine from our Peng Peng Lee, who was our sixth, our last competitor up. She has this beautiful routine. She lands. You see the whole team sobbing and hugging and as if we won the championship, we were in fourth place. Okay. So then you see her score come up and it was a perfect 10 and more hugging and sobbing and the whole bit. Then you see one by one, they start to point up to the leaderboard and we went from fourth to third to second to first. And I've asked every single one of those athletes, did you know that we had the opportunity to win? And they said, no. Every one of them said, you know what, Ms. Val, I thought maybe we could move up to third, possibly second, but the tears came from knowing that we had absolutely no regrets. Wow. That, that gives me goosebumps, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that, and I yeah. can't wait to watch a documentary. That, that's, yeah. that's so that's happening. And then if any of you are listening that want to help me produce, I'm hell-bent on producing an Urban Nutcracker, a film. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, just like Disney-esque, uh, where the nemesis, the, the, um, the Rat King, is a skateboarder. And oh. oh yeah, all like take take the classics of Tchaikovsky and the Nutcracker to the streets, street performance arts, parkour, capoeira, skateboarding. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I can't wait to to watch all this. And uh, thank you. 
do, do you want to give us a final well, there were so many topics that we could have, you know we could have talked you know about i mean there are but you know we, we'll do a part two at some point okay i'm sure great um i'm just going to leave everybody with what the one thing that i wished every student athlete that went through our program really internalized and that is that every single thing you do in life is a choice and every single choice you made including how you say good morning to someone is going to have numerous repercussions and the important part of that is that every choice you make starts with your thoughts which thoughts you feed and which thoughts you starve and when you really take responsibility for your thoughts you you stop becoming a victim in life. So any of you that are struggling with all the crap that's being said about you on social media, take charge of your thoughts and tell yourself, guess what? I'm going to limit my social media to X amount of minutes a day, not hours. I'm going to put my phone away at whatever time at night. I'm going to, I took, I took Twitter off my phone because I just, eh. yeah. like I literally a year ago, I went off social media totally. And um, there's a whole world out there that doesn't live off social, on social media. And they don't really care about people that are on social media. It's fabulous. <laughs> Ms. Well, thank you so much. It was such a treat. Thank you. I'm really grateful for our conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. And for those who listened, uh, I mean, I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I subscribe, share this episode with a friend and see you next time. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you.